Hey, welcome back to the Justificabinator Show. Thanks for a billion listens. And shout out to KMP Student Radio at the University of Arid Stone in Two Stone. And KPYT. Pasquayaki Tribal Radio on the rats with Teresa Show. How's your jamming? How's the bigots? Bigots, America. Mark is down. Anyway, so uh, tonight we're going to listen um, to Sumerian Origins. And I'm going to um, draw, like, that's a very interesting picture. Uh, you know, like, the Sumerian gods, they held out these kind of, like, pine cone things in their hands. And they're dealing with the tree of life, I think. I think that's what that is. I think that's what that is. They're, like, um creating some, something the gods I wonder why that one's kind of fuzzy um very interesting they have a, like their man bag on them and I wonder what that what is that uh context that they're in. I like to study archaeology by uh, recreating its art because I can really, I really get to, I feel I really um, can understand the culture by studying its artwork. What in tarnation is that? What in tarnation happened to the Georgia Guidestones? <laughs> I think Marjorie Trader Green, Perjure Trader Green, blew, it up. I think she done blowed it up. It's like, you know, she was. That's her in the in the. Um, surveillance footage. I bet if you asked her, say well, that was that was, I mean, like if you got like conspiratorial with her, um, I bet she would admit to um, being that person who laid a couple pipe bombs around the Congress. You know, there's some freaking footage that looks just like her walks, walks, t- walks, talks, and. Like a walks like a duck. Um, I think if she were an animal, she would be a duck. A kind of like nasty disposition. Yeah, kind of like mm, I want to say niggardly attitudes. You know, like real mean spirited. 
but you know where did that word where did that word come from niggardly According to Wiktionary, Marjorie, from Middle English Nagard, Nigard, from Nig, possibly of Scandinavian origin, compare Nig. Old Icelandic Nagar, Old Norse H Nig, with descendant <laughs> Swedish Nog, dialectal <laughs> Swedish Nigla, dialectal Norwegian Nigla. <laughs> That's freaking hilarious, man. Nig is a niggardly, is a miserly person. Miserly, stingy. But, you know, is that a racist? Words, yeah. Conscious. Oh, here we go. Controversy is about the word niggardly. The two words are etymologically, etymologically unrelated. Niggardly arising in the Middle Ages long predates nigger. <laughs> Just as not funny. You know, it's mean. Oh, come on, man. It's it's a words. I'm not a. I'm not. Cutting about calling anybody a name. Well, all right. <clears throat> it's for educational purposes, Trista. Get off my case. Shit. No hags, no nags, and no drags. So I told Johnny Depp. Give him some free advice. Oh, I just found out that um, you know, the, like I thought he was contacting me again, because um, Johnny Depp followed me on on. Um, Instagram is it? And but then uh, and it's like hi and then by the time I responded it was suspended. The account was suspended so I guess it was another you know it said something it said like I got a screenshot too and I posted it on Twitter because I'm so proud that uh, Followed me again. <laughs> we have this kind of what do you call it? Love my own together. Uh. You know we're apart, but we're together. I can feel it. You know it's we're all one. And I think I think it's interesting that everybody thinks that they know Johnny Depp. Like his personality. And I think that's because he's a very authentic person. <clears throat> so I know that um, he appreciated. He, he did. He thanked me. Yeah. Uh, I was doing a bunch of. TikToks. And spreading them around. You know. Doing what I do. Well, I'm explaining the case. And now I'm what a fucking psychopath. This bitch was. My god. She's the feminine equivalent of Trump. That's what she is. Fucking evil to the core. Oh, man. She is a head fuck. But still, you know, I just don't get it. Why did he mar fucking marry her? Um, talent. Mean. Um, but I guess she was great at giving heads. There was this one... <laughs> Just so that's well, I'm not pulling that out of my arse. Just uh, um, there was this one uh, video, I mean, audio 
recording of one of their fights and it wasn't it wasn't used in courts it was it was another one it was used, it was on the internet I, you know i went through all this stuff all these audio recordings man she's a fucking cunt she really is my god what a cunt but you know yeah and how how could he have been so gullible well i guess she was a good enough actress to make him think that she was a good she would be good for him but man wow what a what a fucking cunt she turned out to be like but i'm sure i'm sure he'll never make that i'm sure he learned a huge lesson that was probably the worst mistake he ever made not probably it was obviously it was the absolute worst mistake he's ever made <laughs> mistaken judgment and um um huh she's a party girl huh maybe um and Ben Mitty's right you know we don't know these people he was he probably you know he was probably doing threesomes I mean she did threesomes with uh Elon Musk and James Franco or whatever and um what's her face She's bisexual. It's just fucking kinky, man. Um, people like that are too fucking kinky for me. Um, I'm just kind of, you know, vanilla's fine at my age. But she was in her 20s and, and uh, you know, he went for a younger chick. But, um, and people thinking at the time, uh, oh, he's, you know, one of, one of his lawyers was saying that she had seen in the press that he got together with the scammer turd bitch. And, you know, thought, oh, she's a very beautiful woman. He's, he's lucky. No, she's a lucky one. She was fucking nothing. She was a nobody. And she still is a nobody. I think she killed herself. I mean, like, her, the, the self. Um, this destruction of the self. That's how people get that fucking evil. Um, and, you know, that and... Her, uh, her fam Both of her parents were fucking meth heads and alcoholics and pill freaks. So that must have been a pretty shitty uh, environment to grow up in. And also, this is something that a lot of people don't know about Scamber Turd. But she apparently killed her best friend when she was a teenager. And then there was some kind of scuffle or something at the, the funeral. And she's had, to, she's had to split town. Split town dropped out and then she went to um she went to do some modeling in Hollywood and and then she tried to do try to get into some act immediate the, uh, immediately she got into the drugs you know big time drug scene party scene and um she snorted copious enormous quantities of, of coke so that, like, the host of the party, you know, refused to let her go. 
and you know you're not leaving she's not leaving um they were you know she was uh, uh, you know she cheated on her uh lesbian wife with um a stripper and then it got into this really violent uh fight um you know i've I've listened to a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of footage, footage of, and research on scamber turds. Glad to see she's, a, you know, I think she's just gonna fucking drop out of, she already has, you don't hear anything about scamber turds. What the fuck are you doing in here, bitch? Anyway, we're kind of, like, not learning about the Sumerian culture, are we? But, um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, anyway, I'm, it's a little bit of a bummer that, you know, I guess it was a scammer. Um, I've sent my phone number to him a couple times. Hey, if you know, if you wanna, wanna talk. I'm here, man. Basically, I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> um. And uh, what's up? I was writing this thing about. It's kind of like high, um high schoolish, but like why uh why we're perfect for each other. No, from share British set with an appreciation of British sense of humor and uh, good with languages, good with people, um, very nice, uh, kind, kindness, kind heartedness, good friends, loyalty, um, artist. He, he considers himself a, a musician, I'm a musician as well. And a painter, and he's a painter, and um, he he once gave I you know I learned about I learned about how perfect we were for for each other from the from the case, like you know I didn't I didn't realize I didn't realize it until I you know heard him say things like. Or I heard how he had sent Scamber um, some guitars or something, a guitar, and, you know, to encourage her to play music. Well, and she sent it back, the fucking cunt. So uh, I was. My point is that wow, that's if if he gave me a guitar. I was his girlfriend and he gave me a guitar I would be, I would think well you know like I chose wisely this is the you know this is the one this you know this guy really loves and understands me and support and and is uplifting you know an uplifting kind of person and and that's one thing that one story I heard I thought holy shit you know that and uh, and, and the fact that I think he wants, he would love to play with this girl, play music with his girlfriends. I would love to do that too. And, um, 
jam with my boyfriend's with music and also writing. Like he, his best friend, his kindred spirit, his brother and spirit was uh, was Hunter S. Thompson, and I'm a writer as well. I was I love Hunter. So I've read lots of his work and and. Uh, um, that's one of my favorite movies is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And uh, where I think, you know, Johnny Depp was just incredible. He just nailed it. And I mean, they were really close friends and he's obviously a great actor. So, um, a brilliant actor, you know, like the range and, and breadth of, of his characters are amazing. Like nobody... Almost nobody does that breadth of of character, you know. And and I, I was telling them things to cheer him up, you know, like, and I predicted that he would he would get a billion dollars in movie offers this year alone. Yeah, his his career, I knew, uh, I predicted before the end of the trial that his career was going to skyrocket and it did so I was right I was totally right and hers is going to go she's in the dust she's in the dirt stupid cunt treat a, treat a good man like that that's really wrong wrong and uh, he, she could have killed him fucking psycho like she did with her, her uh, childhood friend. Her childhood best friend. I think she was on the way to killing him. Just like she did to her other best friend. Anyway. And the other thing that I, I thought... The other story I heard about him. That made me feel that we were meant for each other. Another... another reason is that he said that when you know all he wants to do is put a smile like in the morning all he wants to do is put a smile on this woman's face and that's that's so beautiful that's exactly what that's what I want I want somebody that wants to make me smile I don't, I don't want some I don't want somebody who, who wants to make me sad or cry or, or upset or jealous or you know that shit Wasted time. <sighs> anyway, I'm making pot. I'm making turkey pot pie. I mean, not um chicken pot pie. And I'm making um hamburger pot pie. <laughs> I'm making the young my own crust. Anyway, let's listen to to the Sumerian origins whilst I'm making my pot pies. The noise my So they're not related, by the way, niggardly. So it's not a racist word, but you know, it's. I haven't used it for a long time, and part of it is because mm, it sounds like a racist word. <laughs> Anyway, 
and yeah, if I if I said that words and there were black people around, they would probably think I was I was trying to um, get a rise out of them, try to intimidate them or something, you know. But Americans are fucking selfish and um, you know these magatards are the and and you know they've been this. POS has brought out the real cray crays in our society, you know, and uh, they came out of the woodwork. Uh, he fostered all these terrorist militias. They're all his, man. Nobody ever heard about the Oath Keepers and the uh, Three Percenters and the Proud Boys until he came along. He started them. They started under him. He started, fired them up. In fact, I'm going to tweet about that. department do your fucking job do your job for fuck's sake <coughs> to protect us 
Hugo Lowell, I'm going to be tweeting this to uh, Hugo Lowell. I'm s tired of tweeting to myself. Tweeting to myself. Uh uh uh. I tweeted to myself. I tweeted to myself, ah uh, ah, uh, I tweeted to myself. I tweeted to myself, ah uh, ah uh, ah ah. Uh, ah uh, ah uh, ah. Uh. Ah uh, ah uh, ah. Uh. Three percenters, cue it on. Those are his fucking brain children. Okay, they're his fucking terrorist groups. And I've been dancing with myself. One time, I um, went up my first Facebook account. I um, put that Billy Idol was my dad's. My da. My da. Alright. Great news for the Democrats. Uh oh. Uh oh. Okay, TikTok. Make a TikTok out of it. Some agents were not forthcoming.
cool. Okay. So, um, yeah, that was a uh, little ASMR of, of uh, crickets, real crickets. Huh. Okay, so let's let's do the Sumerian thing. Okay, it's a couple hours long. I want to finish making my pot pies. Enlil Nisaba. Incredible and mythology of Enlil Nisaba. Nisaba and Nisaba. Incredible. You know, these, these two, they have like lion heads, both of them. And they're at each other's roads with they're kind of like built like uh superheroes incredible mythology, mythology decoded and nana enlil as he was commonly called was considered one of the most powerful gods in mesopotamia he was also called nanamni at times in Sumer, he was considered the Wait, was considered the god of the air, but despite his limitations to this element, he was considered exceptionally powerful when compared with other like elemental deities. As time so went lush. on, he grew in power and esteem and eventually became the king of all the gods. Following with the usual progression of Mesopotamian pantheon family trees, Enlil was sired by the high god Anu. Alongside his father and the god of wisdom named Enki, Enlil was part of the ruling trinity of all existence in the universe. He was closely associated with the tablet. That's really pretty. Um, that's like uh, archers. It's a destiny, and one whose decisions were not up for debate. The focus of Enlil worship centered around Nippur city. There, the people built a massive temple. That's really awesome. Um, I want to draw that. It's got a weird beak. Kind of a falcon or something. Eagle? What is, what is it, that head? Or is it more of a serpent? Like a dragon. It's got hair. And muscly. And a bird's head. Who the fuck is that? And the pinecone things. Because of his importance in the overall pantheon of gods and goddesses, many people from other cities and towns worshipped him as well. This was partially And <clears throat> he's got the they've got this trippy uh wristwatch. And oh, there's like two knives in his. It's got kind of like a cummerbund. <laughs> because they believed he could directly speak with Anu on their behalf. While the worshippers understood him to be basically the. 
right hand of the ruler of the universe, they also saw that he because they believed he could directly speak with Anu on their behalf. While the worshippers understood him to be basically the right hand of the ruler of the universe, they also saw that he made his own decisions without the counsel of his father. Enlil translates into Lord of Air, but his influence and power extended far beyond things like the sky and the atmosphere. Some carvings call him the father of the gods, or the father of the black-headed people, which is a moniker given to the Sumerians at large. This differs a bit from the general idea of Enlil translates into Lord of Air. Because of his importance in the overall pantheon of gods and goddesses, many people from other cities and towns worshipped him as well. This was partially because they believed he could directly speak with Anu on their behalf. While the worshippers understood him to be basically the right hand of the ruler of the universe, they also saw that he made his own decisions without the counsel of his father. Enlil translates into Lord of Air, but his influence and power extended far beyond things like the sky and the atmosphere. Some carvings call him the father of the gods, or the father of the black-headed people, which is a moniker given to the Sumerians at large. This differs a bit from the general idea of the creation myths that the Mesopotamians believed in. It was not Enlil who first came up with the idea of creating people, and he was not complicit in creating other lesser gods either. This is generally given over to more ancient deities like Tiamat, Apsu, and Enuma Elish in Babylon. Although it seemed that primordial gods and especially Anu ruled everything and controlled creation, Enlil acted as a type of universe CEO who kept everything running as he or the other gods intended. The family line of deities included all the other roles necessary to make existence work. Enlil had Ninlil as a wife and they had multiple children between them. Their first son was named Nuska, but they also had Nana, the moon god, Utashamash, the sun god, Ishkur, the god of weather, and Inanna, the goddess of love and relationships. Like As with many ancient religious Aphrodite. stories, the exact family placement of Enlil and the Isis. gods and goddesses, supposedly related to him, were shaky and dynamic. For example, the god of wisdom named Enki was sometimes said to be Ishkor's twin brother, and therefore Enlil's son, but also not related to him whatsoever. Inanna is another one who has a shifting place in the family tree. Mesopotamia civilization lasted for an exceptionally long time, so it makes sense that belief systems and histories would change throughout the centuries. The addition of... That would actually make sense if she was the twin brother, because... Uh... Weren't they sister and sister and brother, man and wife? From what I recall, of Sumerian gods and goddesses and other beliefs from a diverse range of cultures would infiltrate and blend with the original belief systems. It is important to note that the early scribes were frequently more interested in pleasing the people who paid them or making their writing popular 
than they were with telling the truth or sticking with cultural conventions. Enlil was a target of much worship from around 2900 to 2083 BCE. Throughout the early dynastic period and during the Akkadian Empire, instead of disappearing completely after that, he was reimagined as Marduk from about 1790 to 1750 when Hammurabi ruled in the area. No matter what he was called at different times throughout history, he did remain one of the most important deities and had many stories told about him and his activities. Early Myth of Enlil and Ninlil This interesting story sets Enlil near the beginning of time in the city of Nippur. People have not been created yet, so it seems that the city was created by the gods themselves. Nisaba, the goddess of writing, has a lovely daughter named Ninlil. She tells her that she should not go and bathe in the river because Enlil has his eye on her. However, the younger goddess goes anyway, meets Enlil, who seduces her, gets pregnant, and eventually has Nana, the moon god. In response to this momentous occasion, Enlil figures he better ask to marry Ninlil. This turn of events, however, makes the other gods upset. They arrest Enlil and sentenced him to exile in the underworld. Although it seems to be associated with his seduction and impurity when it comes to Ninlil, the story also puts forth other reasons why this arrest happened. The tale continues with Enlil passing through the gates into the underworld, talking with different characters and asking them if they would be so kind as to not tell his wife where he went. Perhaps believing they will not follow his directions, the god puts on a disguise as each person he spoke with and tells Ninlil that he has no idea where he is. The desperate wife tries to bribe him with sexual favours to get the information. He agrees, but still does not reveal where he went. These tricky romantic encounters result in the birth of Nergal, the god of war and destruction, Enbilulu, the god of canals, and Ninazu, the god of healing. Although this myth makes these three out to be brothers, there are other stories that give them a different parentage completely. For example, Ninazu is frequently shown as the son of the goddess of healing, Gula. Whether Enlil was the father of all these gods or not, this story appears to exist to praise how virile he is. The entire thing seems to focus on the power of fertility and how, even though Enlil and Ninlil were forced apart by things outside their control, they still found a way to come together and create life. The act of him disguising himself is also another indication of how good he is at tricking the other gods and doing what he wants, regardless of their interests. Enlil and the Anzu Bird Anzu shows up around the second millennium BCE in a legendary tale from Babylon. In this story, Enlil plays the role of High God and the one who controls the Tablets of Destiny. Not only do these symbolize his ultimate rule, but they also contain information about the fate of all the people and deities in existence. As with most stories from these days, there are multiple formats. One of the most common tells how Anzu, symbolically aligned with storms and evil things, tried to steal the Tablets of Destiny from Enlil. He so wanted to be the High God of everything, so watched and waited for the other God to slip up. This happens when Enlil decides to wash his face one morning takes off the crown he wears on his head and releases his hold on the Tablets of Destiny. Anzu flies in, grabs them 
and heads up to the mountains. The other gods are quite upset by this turn of events, but refuse to take action against Anzu, even when told to do so. This led to a period of confusion and disorder in both the heavenly realm and for human beings on Earth. Eventually the tablets are returned to Anu, the highest god of them all, by one or another hero god. Different versions of the story say this person was Marduk, Ninurta, or Lugal Banda. Enlil was given back the tablets and thus shown to be supported by the high gods in his control over existence. This is akin to crowning a king in a way. However, the story also shows that Enlil can make mistakes. Further evidence of this was shown in the next myth that included this popular god. The Atrahasis and Great Flood Written in the 1600s BCE, a legend called the Atrahasis tells one of the earliest stories from the religion of Mesopotamia. The oldest gods in the pantheon relax while the younger gods they created toil away at doing all the important tasks necessary for life and existence. Eventually the younger gods and goddesses get very tired of the situation and Enki suggests that they create some other type of beings who can help. This is essentially the human creation myth. Originally, no one could find materials to make people out of until a god named Wilu sacrificed himself for the project. His body and blood are transformed into the type of living clay that Ninhursa goddess shapes into seven women and seven men who are set loose on the earth. These were not the final incarnation of human beings, however. They did do a lot of work for the gods and goddesses, but they also procreated much too quickly and filled the world with so many noisy and active people that they started causing problems for their creators. Enlil gets mad at their constant loud squabbling that he decides to thin out their numbers by sending plagues, droughts and other serious problems to them. While some of them perish, they also pray to Enki for help resisting these horrible problems. He helps many of them survive and restore balance once again. Enlil is confused about why these human beings keep surviving so well and why their numbers keep going up all the time. Finally, he decides that he will flood all of the land and wipe them all out once and for all. Even though he convinces the other gods and goddesses that this is a viable plan, Enki still has some trouble agreeing. He goes to a good man named Atrahasis and instructs him to build a massive ark for his family and many of the animals on Earth. Once a flood occurs and everything is wiped out, Enlil begins to regret that he started this destruction in the first place. While they are mourning all the people and animals that they created in the first place, Enki instructs Atrahasis to come out of the ark with the animals, make a sacrifice to the gods and worship them. At first the knowledge that a person did survive the flood angers Enlil, but they eventually accept the sacrifice and work out a way to create different types of people that would not be so noisy and annoying. The second draft of humanity seems to work out quite well for the gods and goddesses. These creatures do the jobs necessary to maintain the earth, but do not procreate as quickly because they now have mortal lives, may experience infertility, and live with constant threats to their daily lives. In this and other legends throughout the years, Enki is frequently considered the creator of humankind. However, Enlil is also credited with this because he had to essentially sign off on the project to make it happen. Without his consent, there would be no people. Enlil's combination with Marduk 
All the way until Hammurabi took over and the balance of power shifted to the Babylonian kings and deities. Enlil was worshipped quite extensively throughout the known civilization. However, when this changed, Enki's son Marduk took his place as the high god in the pantheon. Marduk was quite impressive as a hero, who accomplished many great feats and triumphed over many evil and chaotic forces. He was respected for helping to create people, the earth itself, and inspiring both farming techniques and law. His popularity made it very easy for the people to accept Enlil's qualities attached to him. This new understanding spread throughout the Babylonian Empire, and eventually the Assyrian one. Nippur remains the central city of Enlil's worship practices. While Enki was associated with the city called Eridu, Nippur matched it in importance and splendor. Of course, because he was a high god, people from outside the city also worshipped him. Many other cities throughout Sumer, Akkad and Babylon, had temples constructed in his honor. These early temples operated very differently from ones later in history, and quite a bit different from those in existence today. The priests or temple keepers did not perform services that people could attend on a regular basis. Instead, they would accept offerings and make sacrifices themselves or on behalf of the citizens of the city and surrounding area. Only one high priest could actually go inside the inner sanctum that contained a statue of the god the temple was dedicated to. As the prominence of Enlil waned and Marduk took over, the followers of the high god dwindled in number. People still worshipped him in their homes and in smaller shrines, and the temple still stood in Nippur. However, since Marduk, along with the gods Nabu and Asur, were now the prominent ones that led the pantheon, the temple was used for other purposes. This occurred mostly between 900 and 600 BCE, during what is known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. In some documents or legends created around those times, Marduk and the two other associated gods were sometimes referred to as Assyrian Enlil, or other names associated with the original moniker of the High God, creator of humanity. Once the Assyrians fell out of power around 612 BCE, the invaders destroyed the temples and statues associated with Enlil and the other gods and goddesses long worshipped by the Mesopotamian civilization. Marduk carried on for approximately five more centuries. However, over that time, Enlil was essentially forgotten and ignored. Nisaba. With all the important surrounding scribes and writing in the early Mesopotamian and Sumerian worlds, it makes sense that Nisaba, the goddess of writing, is quite prominent and important. She was also called Naga, Senaga, Nidaba, and Nisaba in various legends and tales. Not only was she associated with writing itself, but was also responsible for scribe work for all the other gods and goddesses. She started her incarnation in the early dynastic period, one solely in Uma city, where she was worshipped as a goddess of grain. This was around 2900 BCE. Stories put her in Erek city years later, but historians have not been able to identify where exactly it was. Nisaba was one of the immediate offspring of the high god and goddess Anu and Unas. She was one of the only goddesses that was around for an exceptionally long period of time in the entire pantheon, since she was the first generation after the creation of the world. However, like a lot of Sumerian deities, she had different parentage depending on what story you read. 
tales from Lagash stated that she was Enlil and Ninlil's daughter, which would put her one generation down from the god of heaven and goddess of earth. More popularly, Ninlil was her daughter in stories and not her mother. Way back when Nisaba was a grain goddess in just one city, she was shown artistically as a simple stalk of grain. After she became the goddess of writing, she was no longer shown as art. Instead, she featured heavily in stories, which makes sense due to her position as scribe of the gods. She was described as a lovely woman who sat before a clay tablet and held a golden stylus with which to make the unique wedge-shaped cuneiform writing used in Mesopotamia. The increase in interest in writing and records made her one of the most prominent and worshipped goddesses in Sumer around 2600 BCE. In the early dynastic period, Nisaba was written of extensively on cylindrical seals and clay tablets alike. Not only did she cover writing, but she seemed very important in record-keeping for things like building temples and important monuments in various cities. Historians have identified a parallel between her and Seshet, the Egyptian goddess, responsible for the same types of things. As with any determination of ancient writings, it is difficult to tell exactly if the two goddesses influence each other or one was adopted by the other culture or not. Since both Sumer and ancient Egypt were quite fond of temples and grand building projects, it would make sense that these types of deities arise independently too. When Nesaba was a grain goddess, she was also known as Nun Basedunu, which means the lady whose body is flecked barley. In the one city that viewed her this way, she was often mentioned with the god of canals named Enugi. How she changed from grain to writing is not quite clear. However, from around 2047 to 1600 BCE, she was solely associated with writing, records and scribes. Her popularity waned during the old Babylonian period, when Hammurabi was in power. She was replaced by a god named Nebu, who was the son of Marduk. Hammurabi was very successful was in introducing and transforming Marduk as the king of all the gods, so it would make sense that his offspring were likewise elevated to important positions. Nisaba, Scribes and Writing The entire concept of writing was first invented by the Sumerians around 3500 BCE. As with all early written communication, it was used primarily to keep things clear and fair for trade. As Mesopotamia grew and more great cities popped, first invented by the Sumerians around 3500 BCE. As with all early written communication, it was used primarily to keep things clear and fair for trade. As Mesopotamia grew that and more like great cities popped up, they needed a way to officially communicate between them. After all, oh. servants or messengers sent could not possibly remember all the precise wording of all the messages necessary to complete what complex trade or give appropriate honour to each of, of the minor rulers that they came across. So a writing system of wedge-shaped oh. marks named cuneiform was created. Unlike straight hieroglyphics that used more pictorial representations, cuneiform was strictly symbolic. Each different mark etched into the clay tablet represented an object, an amount or measurement. For example, one such tablet could speak of how many parcels of grain or heads of cattle would be traded for each other. 
or send as an offering to a temple. After writing on the clay, they would get dried in the sun and carried to the recipient. Many of them were stored for quite some time as a record of trade practices. This was not writing as we know it today. There were not sentences and stories at the beginning of cuneiform. It was more an accounting system for economic ledgers in a way. Soon, simply saying that two sheep were sent to a temple was not enough information for the traders or messengers to convey. More complicated writing was necessary to give specific details. In Uruk city around 3200 BCE, this more complex system was developed. Instead of pictographs, the people now learned how to use phonographs, in which the stylus marks represented phonetics or how the words sounded when spoken. Using this method, the scribe could indicate that the sheep were sent to a specific named it temple looks when, to me. and by whom. They could also contain information about the type of sheep, whether they were living or not, and what they would be used for once they the got there, such as breeding or sacrifice. It seems that the grain goddess Nisaba was probably first linked with writing because grain was one of the most frequently transported trade goods in Mesopotamia. Since the first so-called writing consisted of measures and trade ledgers, the association with grain is quite obvious. As the cuneiform evolved, so too did Nisaba, the goddess responsible for it. As the years progressed, the same sound-based writing would expand to include grand stories, important communication, temple records, laws, poetry and more. Scribes became incredibly vital to the functioning of the entire society. They were educated in schools called E-Dubba, or the Tablet House, that existed in many towns all across the land. Although most of the scribes were men, women were also educated in writing in many places. As the goddess of writing was obviously a female, perhaps this influenced the education of many priestesses and other women. For example, Enheduanna, the high priestess Inua wrote down hymns, poetry, and tales of her association with Inanna, goddess of love. The entire realm of education sprung from this early need for writing, more than just simple records of trade and commerce. There are records that the practice tablets and instructional pieces used at many of these scribe schools would end with, praise be to Nisaba, to honor the goddess who helped create cuneiform herself. The belief system of the early Mesopotamians equated the gods and goddesses with the item or system they represented. So when Nisaba was first symbolized with the image of the stalk of grain, it meant that she was part of the grain herself. When she was later associated with writing, the actual being of the goddess would have been present in the tablets, styluses, and more specifically in the actual writing. Nabu gains more popularity and worship. Although Nisaba was undoubtedly highly respected and worshipped extensively, no archaeologists have ever found a temple for her specifically. She was included in worship services with Ninlil and Nabu in some places, however. It is possible that the temples started out for the goddess of writing herself, but were later restructured for these other gods. As Nisaba was so closely associated with writing, her worship may have been primarily executed in scribe schools and scribe offices for the prominent temples and palaces of the time. Whenever someone wrote a new clay tablet, they were actively worshipping her. Over time, as writing became more common, 
The goddess also became associated with the fields where it was used the most, religion, education, astronomy, and mathematics. The high priestess of Ur, Enheduanna, wrote that Nisaba was a faithful woman exceeding in wisdom. The importance of the high priestess and her close personal association with goddesses and gods would have allowed her to call the deity of woman just like she was. One of the more prominent pieces of writing featuring the goddess of writing called the hymn to Nisaba described her as radiant as the stars clutching a tablet made of valuable lapis lazuli in her hands and associated with cows, sheep, plants and reeds. She was associated with 50 great divine powers and described as most powerful. These are the types of things that many scribes would write at the beginning of their missives as they called upon Nisaba's help in writing what they had to do more accurately and beautifully. When Hammurabi took power, however, he began to push out the idea of Nisaba and replace her with a god named Nabu. When the Babylonian throne came to Hammurabi after Sin Mubalid, his father, abdicated, he became quite a forceful ruler who truly sought to build a massive empire. He created a strong military force and moved against his enemies quite frequently while always giving glory to the gods for his wins. Hammurabi had his own favorite gods and ignored most of the goddesses who were currently worshipped in Mesopotamia. This belief system became more prominent as he conquered more people and assimilated the established ones into his idea of the culture. Not right.